one of the descriptors of Satan is he's the father of lies. And so much of our battles are in our mind. The voice of Satan he drops these ideas in our minds. It sounds like us. Sure does. That's the, ins- the insidiousness of it, really. Yes, yes. And if he can get our thinking messed up, get us anxious and worried and uh, making false assumptions about relationships, false assumptions about God, who he is, well, he's won the battle. He stifles us. He shuts us down. Have you ever arrived somewhere, you're driving in a vehicle, and you get there and you think, I, for the life of me, can't remember how I got here. Well, that happens to me, and that kind of thing happens when we drive mindlessly. Yes, our body was in the vehicle, but our mind was somewhere else. And if we're honest, we live a lot of our lives that way, on some form of autopilot. It's like we're pushing, pushing, pushing to get to that next better moment, what we think is that next better moment, and we fail to notice and appreciate the present moment or moments that we're in. And there's a cost to this, the research is saying, and we're leaving a lot of benefits physically, emotionally, professionally, relationally on the table when we live this way. Hi, this is Brian Del Turco, and you're listening to Jesus Smart, the podcast. This is episode 65, and the conviction here is that Jesus really knows how this life works best in the now, plus the future is his, and and it's starting to show up in the present. You're about to hear a dialogue with Dr. Charles Stone. He has advanced degrees in ministry and neuroscience and leadership, so I'm just going to say that we have some holy brain power coming on the podcast today. Okay. I really, really enjoyed the dialogue. Dr. Stone, he read over 200 books and research papers over a three-year period to write his newest book, Holy Noticing. Do you realize that studies are showing that a spiritual discipline like Holy Noticing, practiced for just a few minutes a day, has incredible potential benefits, including improved physical health, improved memory, less anxiety, more restful sleep, improved relationships, a greater ability to regulate our internal, mental, and emotional responses. So much of life is lived from that space, right? More controlled thought life, enhanced attention to the body language of others, like EQ, right? Emotional quotient or emotional skills of empathy and communication, cues, reading people a greater presence and engagement with others in their pain and their joy. How about a greater comfort in your own skin? Do you want some of this stuff? I do. Strengthened spiritual life, a more conscious awareness of Christ's presence with you, less distracted Bible reading, (laughs) increased compassion and empathy for others, growth in character and wisdom, increased sensitivity to sin and injustice, and a greater appreciation of creation and people. And there's more. All of these benefits from a ancient, the resurrection of an ancient spiritual practice called holy noticing. On a personal note, I don't mind saying that I'm desperate for the benefits of this ancient Christian practice. You know, Leonard Sweet talks about ancient futurists. What you're about to hear blends this ancient wisdom with current neuroscience. Get ready for this. Now, don't Please don't hide the gold 
that today's guest is going to bring to the table as we talk about his book. Be sure to share this episode with your friends and family. We're really motivated today to have Dr. Charles Stone on the podcast talking about his new book, Holy Noticing, subtitle, The Bible, Your Brain, and the Mindful Space Between Moments. Thank you for carving out some time, Dr. Stone, to be with us. I'm excited about this topic, and I feel like I'm um, personally in great need of its content. (laughs) Oh, thanks, Brian. Great to be with you. Yeah, I think we're just sort of... uh, are you in on Ontario or? Um... Yeah, London, Ontario, about two two hours north uh, east of Detroit. Oh yes, okay. Well, I think we're sort of bracketing one of the Great Lakes, Lake Erie. I'm I'm in the Cleveland area. And, oh yeah, uh, my son's son's there. Uh, he's a associate pastor at uh, a church there in Cleveland, Cleveland area. Oh, very good, very good, excellent. Yeah, that's wonderful. Well, Doctor Stone and his wife Cheryl have been married for thirty six years. They have three adult children, two grandchildren. And both he and his wife have a heart for pastors, for pastors' wives. They've taught hundreds of pastors and their wives in the U.S., Canada, Nicaragua, Colombia, Haiti, Cuba, and Mexico. He has served for over 35 years in the U.S. and Canada, 24 of those years as a senior pastor. And currently, is it is it West Park Church in London, Ontario? Mm-hmm. Yep, that's it. Mm-hmm. Multicultural congregation, over 1,000 attendees. He's also founded Stonewell Ministries to serve pastors and churches through coaching and consulting. Well, let me just tell you about his his education, because I think with today's topic, it's good to know his background in terms of education. He has an engineering degree from Georgia Tech in the States, a Master's of Divinity from Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, a DM, a Doctorate of Ministry from Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, and his most recent degree, which is perhaps the most interesting to me, an executive master's in the neuroscience of leadership. What's the shorthand for that degree, Dr. Stone? <laughs> How would you describe I, that? I don't know if there is a, is a shorthand. Okay. It's pretty much that. <laughs> it's too complex to have a shorthand, right? Okay, the Neuro Leadership Institute. He's authored five books. We're, we're talking about, about book number five today, but Daughters Gone Wild and Dad's Gone Crazy. <laughs> uh, we have four daughters, Dr. Stone. They're all doing good, but that's an intriguing title right there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and then, and then, five ministry killers: how to defeat them, people pleasing pastors, avoiding pitfalls of approval, motivated leadership, and I think the book right before this one, "Brain Savvy Leadership: The Science of Significant Ministry." That's an that's an interesting title, Doctor Stone. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's a fun book to write. Very good. He also blogs at charlesstone.com. I noticed that a couple of his recent posts, what Ben Franklin teaches us about productivity. I'm going to have to get into that one. I like I like Ben Franklin, big fan of him. And then five ways to minimize decision fatigue, which is also good. We're making too many decisions, aren't we? Like our closets are too big, right? With too many choices of clothes, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> all, all across life, that's true. Yeah. So um, what are some of your interests and hobbies and personal pursuits before we get into it, uh, Dr. Stone? Sure. Well, first of all, I just love hanging around with my wife. Uh, we have one adult adult daughter that still lives with us, and she's going to seminary, at Tyndale Seminary in Toronto. She goes a couple of days a week. Okay. Love hanging around with Cheryl. And I guess if you could say I had a hobby, it's learning. I just, I just love to learn. I uh, love to read. I read. For me, fun reading is reading a book on neuroscience. Wow. <laughs> That's yeah. It's crazy. But I'm just so fascinated with that. So I love doing that. And, you know, this may sound real unspiritual, but 
wife and I like watching a, a TV program, uh, you know, at, at night. We, we like to watch some uh, suspense thrillers. Um, and uh, so it just kind of chill out. I don't have to use my brain at all. And so I'll eat, I'll eat popcorn and watch a program or two and yeah. just go to bed. Yeah, yeah, really. I mean, when you're sort of a high gear learner and your brain's active so much during the day, you have to turn it off, don't we? And relax right, right. and um, pursue yeah. other, yeah, mm-hmm. get some other inputs. What do you think gave you your great um, interest in learning and in cognition and, uh, you know, pursuing um, these topics? Well, I think in general, uh, growing up in high school, I was not much of an athlete. I was uh, too skinny to play the football. I was scared of the ball, so I couldn't play baseball. I was pretty good at basketball. I just couldn't shoot, dribble, or pass. Oh, all right. <laughs> so that eliminates that. Uh, so I could run, and I just loved academics. I just, just did well in that. Specifically, though, my interest in neuroscience is a very personal mm-hmm. uh, story. And it actually began in a high chair like 32 years ago. Okay. Be happy to tell that story if you'd like. Absolutely, yeah. I know this book was hard won, so please please feel yeah, free. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, my wife is from Mississippi, and uh, we were visiting her parents uh, and her sister 32 years ago on um, Christmas. It was 31 years ago on Christmas, and I had high chair duty for my youngest daughter, Tiffany. Okay. She was a year old at the, t- at the time. I was feeding her, you know, pureed peaches or something like that. And Brian, I noticed that her left eye was quivering. Mm-hmm. And that's very disconcerting. You know, you have four girls, and if you see something like that, it's very disconcerting sure. for a parent. Yeah. A couple of days later, I took it to her doctor, and he said, you know, it's probably a strabismus. It's something kids grow out of. But when you go back to Atlanta, we were in Atlanta at the time, it's probably a good idea for you to, you know, see a specialist and uh, just have them check her out. So we went to see the specialist. He said, it's probably a strabismus, but let's just take a CAT scan just in case. So a few days later, took had a CAT scan on the way home. Just as we opened the door to our little rental house, I'd started a church there at that time in Atlanta. Okay. Phone was ringing. Ran into the kitchen, picked up the receiver, and it was the doctor on the other end. He said, Charles, we got the scans back. Or Mr. Stone, we got the scans back, and your daughter has a lesion. And I thought, what? what's a lesion? You know, a lesion is like, you know, you, you, you add antibiotic and it goes away. Mm-hmm. Then he said something that transformed the next few decades of our lives. He said, your daughter has a brain tumor. Our one-year-old daughter was diagnosed with a brain tumor. Mm-hmm. Now, fast forward ahead the next 30-plus years. Tiffany's had 12 uh, brain surgeries. She was at two of them by Dr. Ben Carson, who's very well known in the U.S. Oh, yeah, of course. Ran for president, and he's in the cabinet right now. Yeah. She's had an experimental device placed in her brain. She's had part of her brain removed. Wow. And she's doing pretty well now, going to seminary, as I shared. And that whole experience in that world, that neurology world, that neuroscience world, sparked an interest in me to ask myself the question, not that I thought I had a brain tumor, but... I practiced spiritual disciplines. I read the Bible. I memorized scripture. I mm-hmm. studied the scripture. I was a pastor. And yet there were still felt like something was missing. Like I was still defensive with people. I was still anxious a lot. And so that pushed me into digging into this whole issue of this, this whole category of cognitive neuroscience. Like what is the mind really doing? How does that impact life and leadership and spirituality? Mm-hmm. And so that just led me to get this executive master's, led me to write these books, and just brought me on this journey 
of learning. In fact, I'm, I'm a geek. I'm, I'm in another program now through Johns Hopkins where Tiffany had, had two of her surgeries on mind, brain, and teaching where it's a graduate certificate program where they bring the best of learning on neuroscience and how does that impact learning? Wow. And of course, the application for me is how does that impact spiritual formation? And my book, Holy Noticing, relates to that. So very personal, visceral uh, motivation why I'm so passionate about this subject. Wow. Wow. What a testimony and a story. So obviously you're sort of hardwired to begin with. You're designed as a, I would say, a high order learner and a, and a person who's very interested in that. And also this personal experience in your family uh, together with that um, motivated the writing of this book and the research behind it. Mm-hmm. The Bible, your brain, and the mindful space between moments, holy noticing. Are we, um, this is sort of a rhetorical question for me because I kind of know what the answer is <laughs> just from my own personal <laughs> life and my own uh, limited observations, but um, are we not having enough time to think, enough time to be quiet, enough time to be mindful, even as even as Christians today in our times? Oh, you, you, you asked the million dollar question. We live in this world, this 24-7 connectedness. You know, I'm, I'm guilty of it, too. I'm sitting in front of my monitor. I have my MacBook about a foot away. I have my iPhone here. I have my Apple Watch. So if I ch- – yeah, yeah, I, I love technology, too. So if I chose to, I could be 24-7 connected. And we live in this world where we're constantly bombarded to move to this next better moment. And so – for Christians, yes, we're caught into this world where we're, we're missing that contemplative, quiet, slowed pace. And even the secular world, there are a lot of, a lot of books that have come out. Uh, Cal Newport is a, yeah. uh, he's a brilliant guy. He's written deep work in his most recent one, Digital Minimalism. Yes. When he talks about how can we carve time for ourselves away from all of our digital connectedness. So yeah, it's, 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 it's kind of like Mary and Martha syndrome, yeah. you know, this, when Jesus went and visited them and yeah. Martha was busy, busy, busy. And what was, what was Mary doing? Sitting at the feet of Jesus, just being still with him. So yeah, it's, it's a missing thing uh, in our culture and missing from our spirituality as well, I believe. Yeah. There's so many inputs. And I think that everybody labors under this to one degree or another. It seems that some people who are maybe really love inputs and really love information and can't seem to go through a 24-hour cycle without great great amounts of inputs and information coming in. I kind of relate to that myself. Or perhaps even more, this is more of an issue for, for people like that, right, it seems? Yeah, you know, I think it's, 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 it's specific, more, more uh, intense for some people. Yeah. But it's interesting, one of the studies that I re- referenced in the book, uh, some neuroscientists studied uh, how well people can just be still with their thoughts. And so the, the study involved people coming in, probably college students, I don't remember the specific details, but they asked them to be in this room like 15 minutes with just their thoughts. They didn't have their cell phones, their watches, nothing, no books, nothing. But <laughs> okay. they strapped a little lead to their ankle. And it was attached to an electrical producing device, battery or something like that. And they could punch a button if they had their hand if they wanted to. And it would hurt. No, it wouldn't damage them, but it would hurt. The vast majority of people could not go through 15 minutes with just their thoughts, being with their thoughts without punching the button. <laughs> one, one guy punched it over 150 times. Oh, my goodness. So we have a hard time just being still 
with our thoughts. It's, 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 you know, part of the reason I think from the fall, part of the reason our culture being constantly connected. Yeah. Yeah. It's very loud. There's so much noise and it's mm-hmm. when we're like that, it's hard to, I call it like a signal to noise ratio from science. It's yeah. hard to, it's hard to pick yes. up God's voice. It's hard to yes. feel like what the lead of the Holy spirit is on a matter mm-hmm. when there's so much uh, noise in our minds and our minds are overactive now, you write that the research is showing that something like, you call it holy noticing. Um, mm-hmm. The world, the secular world is really onto this a lot with mindfulness, aren't they? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And is mindfulness in terms of the secular world, is it sort of sourced in the Eastern religions? Is that, is that true? Yeah, that it, it is. And that's one of the reasons that prompted me to write this book, that most of what you find on mindfulness has Buddhist roots. Yeah. Uh, and there are a few Catholic writers, a few Anglican writers writing on it, but very few kind of evangelical, biblically focused people who are writing on, on this. And so uh, you know, I have a strong enough theology. I, I read probably 200 studies and or books in, in doing the research for this. I have a strong enough theology that I can read that stuff and say, uh, Buddhist, uh, Buddhist, uh, Buddhist, uh, uh, there's an insight I can learn. But yeah, it really is. It fundamentally, the secular approach is rooted in Buddhism. Yeah, but do you feel that even from the secular approach and even the Eastern roots, that there could be some—I don't know what to call it—other than maybe general revelation or a common grace—that some of those yes. truths or practices are actually good and healthy? Absolutely, Brian. And uh, I think Saint Augustine was the first that said, "All truth is God's truth." Okay. So we can learn. I think what can give comfort to Christians that read about mindfulness, I'll define holy noticing in a minute, read about it from a Christian perspective, is that good science is truth, God's truth. Yeah. Good science is telling us the benefits of these practices. But you also go into biblical history. Look at the Old Testament. You find many references to this quietness and contemplative, meditative, being still before God, especially mm-hmm. in the Psalms. Yeah. And the word mindfulness comes out of the Pali language, which was kind of Buddhist uh, language, the Buddhist language. But people need to realize that these practices rooted in the Hebrew scriptures predated the Pali language. Sure. So you have this predating here. You have the example of the Old Testament. You have the example of the New Testament. Mary, Jesus getting away, being still before God. The Apostle Paul's fascination with the use of the word mind. Over 40 times he used the word mind in his writings. So, yeah, you know, this general revelation, all truth is God's truth, we can learn from that, and we, and we should. We shouldn't be afraid of it. Yeah. And so what was the Hebraic understanding of meditation, for example? I mean, Psalms 1 immediately gets right after it with meditation. Mm-hmm. Um, how did the Hebrew mind understand and practice meditation? Well, the, the, one of the primary words in Hebrew language, I'm not a Hebrew scholar, is called zakar. And zakar means to meditate, contemplate, and remember. And that word and that root word is really all throughout the Old Testament, but specifically in the Psalms. And it was really a practice of contemplating the very nature of God, His goodness, uh, uh, His creation. And one of the things that, that I love and one of the verses that I use when I go through this, my own personal practice of mindfulness, holy noticing, is when David says, we are fearful, I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Okay. He was thinking about, I don't know what he was doing. Maybe he was, I don't know, bending over at a creek and, you know, <laughs> he used his hands to cut water and he looked at his fingers and he said like, wow, 
I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Lord, I know that full well. And so he meditated and reflected on God's wonderful creativity in crafting this thing called the human body. Mm. So I'll give my definition. Holy noticing is how I define uh, mindfulness from the Christian perspective. And it is, holy noticing is, is essentially noticing with a holy purpose, God and his handiwork, our relationships, and our inner world of thoughts and feelings. I'll say it again. So mm. noticing with a holy purpose, okay. God and his handiwork, our relationships, and our inner world of thoughts and feelings. So that's that's how I'm defining mindfulness from a Christian perspective, using the concept of the two words, holy noticing. Mm. Holy noticing. And so just because there may be an expression of mindfulness today that is even unbiblical, let's say, parts of it, you know, not fitting in with a biblical worldview does not mean that we should like throw the baby out with the bathwater, right? If there is something that's not quite in alignment with what God would want for this practice, doesn't mean that we should ignore the whole, the whole practice, right? Exactly. Some of these practices are similar, like paying attention to the breath, just physically slowing down. It's kind of like exercise that, you know, we, we can't, there's not Christian exercise and then exercise. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. Exercise really. is good for your body. So these practices, there are some alignment of the practices, but the motive is different. The power source is different. Sure. The reason we're doing it is, is dramatically different. So, yeah. Absolutely. Now, you mentioned that Jesus practiced this. You know, he is our gold standard, right? He is what it means mm-hmm. to be a God follower or, well, you know, uh, you know, an, an apprentice of the kingdom is our calling. So, so how did he um, practice this? Um, what does that mean for us as a disciple of Christ, as a learner and, and, and yeah. one who wants to replicate Christ? Well, I think Jesus not only lived it, but he taught it. He lived it in that he, he noticed the things that most people would not notice, the lepers crying out to him. He noticed the woman with it, and I think the, the uh, King James says the issue of blood. She had some sort of a disease. He noticed that she touched his cloak. He noticed the woman that nobody else noticed, the Samaritan woman at the well, that were just kind of seen as not non-people. He noticed, and he noticed children that wanted to come to him, and the disciples tried to shoo the kids away. Mm-hmm. So Jesus was the, he's the, 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 the prototypical noticer of noticing these things. Jesus also practiced pulling away. He was, I mean, if he had a daytimer, his his outlook would have been jam full of so many things he had to do. And yet we find him often pulling away to be with his father. He needed that. He also taught it on the Sermon of the Mount when he, and he taught about worry. One of my favorite passages, Matthew six, when he was teaching the people, he said, look, look at the flower. So what Jesus would do, he would actually, in, in his teaching, he would take real life experiences right in the moment and point to that. And so he, he, he calls the people to think about and reflect over that flower right there. God takes care of that flower. You know, I mean, Solomon's not dressed like one of these. Oh, and look at the, look at the birds of the air. So what Jesus did, he, he taught the people to pay attention. Several times he says, he who has ears to hear, listen, let him hear. So basically saying, pay attention, be still long enough to pay attention to what I'm saying and really give reflective thought to it. So he, he was just a, he was a prototypical noticer. 
Absolutely. And he said things like, I don't do anything on my own initiative, but only what I hear the yes. father and, you know, yes. catalyzing mm-hmm. me to do. I don't say anything. And so how could he do that if he was not giving attention, right? And had the space, right? Yes. The mental and emotional, spiritual space to hear the signal of God, if you will. I mean, are we missing yeah. out, uh, Dr. Stone today? Are we, are we, is like, for example, is God leading us and talking to us and trying to get our attention more than we realize? And we're so, we're so filled with noise and activity and mental fatigue that we can't e- actually hear him. Is that possible? Well, I think, oh, I think you're exactly right. I think any honest person would have to say that's, that's the truth. A few years ago, I, I don't I know if this is the exact title of the book, but something like this. It's, it was called 10 Seconds or The Last 10 Seconds or something like that. And I haven't read the book, but the author's his basic thesis was this. He says, when the Holy Spirit kind of whispers to you, uh, I'm, I'm not talking about an audible voice, but nudges your heart, we have about 10 seconds to recognize that before we move on to something else, and we just and that just disappears from our awareness. Mm. And, you know, I'm guilty of that. I'm just so guilty because I'm r- rushing to get from one moment to the next, and I miss those whisperings of the Lord. And there's an interesting, an interesting uh, practice that the— uh, in the Middle Ages and earlier, the monks practice. It's called stadio, S-T-A-T-I-O. It's okay. kind of an, an unknown practice, but uh, stadio is essentially what the monks would do when they finished one task. They would physically, emotionally, spiritually stop before they went to the next task. And in that space, there was a kind of like the completion in their mind and heart of what they just did, mm. recalibration, mm-hmm. focusing on the Lord, before they get, went to the next one, mm. and that stadio was 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 a that, one of the ways I practice it. I'm, I'm on my computer a lot, you know, write, do sermons, all that kind of thing. Sure, I need help to remember to do that, or else I just go one to the next, to the next, to the next thing. Okay, I use a little app. Uh, it's called Timeout. There are a bunch of these you can get online, but it's called Timeout. And basically, what the app does is you set it for like say every hour you want to break for three minutes. At, when 60 minutes passes, your screen slowly goes dim for two, three minutes, wherever you set it. <laughs> okay. When that happens, it forces me to stop, and I go through a little mindfulness practice to, to stop the intense flow of being so task-driven, just to be still before the Lord. And so that's a little helpful tool that I encourage people to do if they're in front of their computer, or, or they can even on their watch and every hour have it ding, just to stop the incessant mental really? chatter. Yeah. yeah it, it helps. Absolutely. It's so simple and practical, but absolutely. And it's almost like we need to retrain ourselves, don't we, to have a rhythm and a cadence which sort of harmonizes with, with this practice? Yes. The, Our yes, minds are so deeply scripted, aren't they, with, with this? Oh, man, yes. Yeah. Well, actually, there, there are kind of two, two words that describe mindfulness. One is state and one is trait. State would be like in your quiet time. You know, you tend to be quieter, and uh, I suggest this practice you go through. That's the that's state mindfulness. But there is trait mindfulness where it's more of where you've you've developed this enough where through the day it's it takes less cognitive resources to remind yourself, hey, slow down the mental pace, stop here. So the the goal ultimately, and the more you practice this, the more it becomes a true 
trait, like in Jesus. For Jesus, when he was so busy and people were coming at him all the time, it wasn't like, oh, I just got to get away to really be still before God. He was able to experience that presence with his Heavenly Father and to others in the moment of intense uh, demand on his time. So it's it's both and. The more you practice it, like in your devotional time, the more it's going to become a regular part of your life. Mm. Are you saying that the more we practice this, and it probably will feel like a discipline, certainly at first, right? But that we sort of re-script our inner person and we condition our inner person to remain um, in that state, even in a very busy or noisy environment or task period that we're on? Mm -hmm. Uh, When these neuroscientists have researched those who practice mindfulness, they have found that uh, there's the the front part of your brain is the prefrontal cortex. That's the high level executive kinds of things. Mm -hmm. Deeper in your brain is your amygdala, and that's implicated in the kind of fight flight response, our defensiveness, fear response, those kind of things. And what happens is right the way we're wired, there are more connections going from your um, your amygdala, your fight-flight center, to your prefrontal cortex. That's why in the heat of stress, oftentimes we don't think clearly, we just react. What they found out is that when a long-term practices of mindfulness develop stronger connections coming from the prefrontal cortex, which is where our emotional regulator is, to the amygdala, So we actually do reconfigure the circuits in our brain. Mindfulness can do that so that it is more of a way of life. So that you're, instead of a, let's say if you're constantly on a seven, you know, stressed, feeling defensive, feeling anxious, it actually permanently lowers those levels, those intense emotional levels, so that we're less apt to just go off on somebody or be defensive or go in our mind and start spinning narratives that the things that really aren't true. Yeah. So it permanently changes us. Yeah. Really? That is so promising. I mean, so this, this really has implications for like walking in the spirit instead mm. of reacting in the flesh, right? Absolutely. Profound implications. You're saying that the amygdala has more connections going to the prefrontal cortex to begin yes. with, if you will. And yes. so we, mm-hmm. we react emotively and reaction and fight flight response. But as we practice mindfulness, we're actually hardwiring our brains and creating more connections back from yes. the prefrontal cortex to the amygdala. Yes. And we can mm-hmm. control our responses better. Mm-hmm. Is, is this, I mean, like one of the fruits of the spirit is self-control, right? Yeah. 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 There's a lot of, as we're learning more about neuro, about neuroscience, we're finding neuroscience confirming what the Scripture tells us. Now, you know, when the Apostle Paul wrote about the fruit of the Spirit, about uh, submitting your minds, he didn't know neuroscience, but the Holy Spirit gave him c- tremendous insight, uh, uh, you know, centuries before science was able to peer into our brains and see some of these things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, you mentioned in your book, you quote uh, Dr. Stephen Covey in his really popular book, The Seven Habits, right, of Highly Effective People. Mm -hmm. One of his big insights was that uh, between stimulus and response, there is a space, right, Mm -hmm. to react more proactively instead of negatively or reactively. So a stimulus Mm -hmm. comes, a positive or negative stimulus comes, and if we if we what what is he saying? If we understand that there is an opportunity, there is a space there to 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 gain control and react positively or, or choose a better way um, in our response. And so, does would you say that mindfulness increases that space or strengthens our awareness of it? Gives us more of a an opportunity to to uh, utilize that space in a positive way. Yes, it it does. And that quote. Uh, 
uh, actually, the rest of it is a, a kind of a good amplification of that first part. Between stimulus and response, there is a space. And in that space, the quote goes, lies that freedom and our power to choose our response. In our response lies our growth and our happiness. And so what research is mm. telling us that it actually cr creates a larger space there because within uh, you know, a fifth of a second when we're in a stressful situation or, or fearful situation that incites our fight-flight centers, our body begins to produce some of these physiological responses, deeper breathing, heart rate increase, uh, uh, un the, the unimportant at the moment body processes slow down like digestion, and our eyes dilate, we can hear better, you know, in, in case we need to fight or flee. Okay. But we do, that's that happens without our even choice. Yeah. The next half a second is we actually feel it. Then the next half a second is when we what we choose to do with it. Okay. Well, you know, oftentimes we just react. You know, we our kids do something, we yell at them or something, or you know, or, or we're in a, a setting and someone says something in our mind, we just start spinning. But what I find is it was, what neuroscience tells us that space is actually enlarged. And I think in that space is where the Holy Spirit works. The more space we have, the more time we have to deliberate and think and mull over, okay, what is the right response at this point? At this point, how should I respond to this? So mindfulness, holy noticing, actually, I think, helps us more consistently live that spirit-filled response so that in that space we respond with the fruit of the spirit rather than the fruit of the flesh. Absolutely. I mean, we all have goals. We have projects we're working on. There's horizons we're pursuing. And I've noticed um, in my own experience recently this, this idea that I'm just going to say the adversary who's always trying to resist good things and beautiful things, right? The devil. Mm -hmm. He tries to break my stride. He tries to get my cadence off, off, off rhythm. And if I can re if he can bait me, if I could, you know, if I could react in a way, it may take me hours to recover from it, yeah. you know, to get back right. into a peak state, a peak productive state, or I may say something to my wife and that, you know, that could, you know, strain our relationship for a, a, a time or something. Mm -hmm. And then I have to go back and, you know, repent of that. And, you know, mm -hmm. re so this is important, isn't it? I mean, we, we want, we're, we're meant to run the race to win it. Right. Dr. Stone. Mm -hmm. I mean, we got to cut down the friction. Right. Right. Oh, when you said that, it made me think of a, of, of a book, um, Oh, I think it's called my stroke of genius. Um, it um, Boltman. I, I don't. I don't have the author's name, but anyway, it was a neuroscientist who realized she was having a stroke, and I mean, she realized that she was able to, you know, get medical help. It took her some time to regain her faculties back, but she wrote about this stroke that she had and how she learned to regain her mental faculties and physical faculties. And she makes a quote in there. I'm just going to kind of paraphrase it. She says, when our fight-flight center kicks in, it's called the sympathetic nervous system, and all, you know, these emotions start, we start feeling anxious or worried, we actually have 90 seconds before, 90 seconds in which we can calm that down. If we let it go beyond 90 seconds, it intensifies, it magnifies, and it becomes worse. So recognizing one of the steps I encourage people to do in the holy noticing is to recognize, be able to call out your emotions, be able to name them rather than simply going on, on autopilot. So that space 
the more we expand that space, the more we can catch ourselves, catch our thinking, catch our emotions before we keep adding more and more narrative and commentary, which really makes them a whole lot worse and harder to kind of get out of that emotional um, thinking unhealthy rut. Some years ago, I was going through a course of, of counseling. Uh, I was receiving counseling because, frankly, I was in clinical depression at the time. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was Christian counseling a- agency, you know, um, organization. And they were giving me something called um, behavioral cognitive therapy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Is there, this sounds a lot like behavioral cognitive therapy, or at least it sounds like it harmonizes with that, paying attention to mm-hmm. how we're thinking, you know. Mm-hmm. listening to the scripts that are running intentionally re-scripting uh, our internal language is there is there a connection here with that yes in fact several counseling protocols are now incorporating mindfulness into their pro- their protocols and uh, the the one related to the cognitive based therapy is mindful based cognitive therapy where mindfulness is very very much a part where part of the learning that going through this protocol of of training is called decentering, where you realize my thoughts and my emotions at the moment aren't necessarily me. And learn to take a third-person perspective of those, Mm. calling out my thoughts, calling out my emotions, being aware of them, actually helps us um, uh, get less engaged with unhealthy thinking and unhealthy emotions. Not that they don't pop up, because... And our body just responds that way. We can't stop them. Uh, we can't stop those emotions. Yeah. So there is a there's a clear relationship, and it's it's encouraging to see more and more counselors using this. In fact, they've even found that mindfulness, in some cases, is just as effective for anxiety uh, and depression as medication is. Yeah, I, I believe that. Yeah, along with exercise, right? Running or exercise, walking. Exercise is huge. Yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm sure the I'm, I'm sure the counseling protocols are catching up to some of the um, the research and and the and the information that's coming about mindfulness, even within the Christian sector mm-hmm. of uh, of counseling. And it's almost uh, it, you know it's as you've alluded to, it's like with the Apostle Paul on the mind. The science is catching up with the Scripture, if you will, and it's catching up with a with a kingdom worldview. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Man, uh, that's very interesting. So just just briefly, what are the benefits? You talk about the benefits of mindfulness, like improved physical health, for example, or improved memory, which is a growing issue today. Um, what are what are the benefits? And I'm, I'm sure there's more. Yeah. Well, uh, just a qualifier. Mindfulness is not the silver bullet. <laughs> but uh, every year, literally hundreds of new research studies are confirming, and the more research that is done that confirms other studies that's repeatable, the more you can say with definitiveness, yes, this helps. Well, body-wise, it helps you deal with stress. Uh, it can help you sleep better. Mm-hmm. Uh, it can even help you in, in uh, eat, eating better because you're more mindful of your eating. Better nutrition, uh, sure. Yeah, yeah. Relationships. It actually helps us become more empathetic, that is, to be able to step in the shoes of another. But empathy is, uh, is part of it. It also uh, uh, impels us, it motivates us to have more compassion toward others. So mm. empathy is one step. Compassion is when we want to seek to help alleviate the suffering of another. Okay. So they found it, it helps there. It helps us with attention helps us to hone our attentional abilities. And attention is huge in relationships, in learning, in school. Absolutely. Uh, it's a, it's it a key helps. it's a key to success, isn't it? It sure is. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. 
Uh, mindfulness helps us uh, uh, control our emotions, as I've mentioned before. Mindfulness helps us, as we mentioned that term, decenter, decenter from healthy thoughts. And actually, I think it helps us, as Apostle Paul says in Philippians 4 8, he says, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, he lists all these various things to think about. It helps us more consistently think on those things. And I think ultimately, as we've talked about the, the spirit directiveness, it helps us become more attentive to the Holy Spirit's work in our hearts and our lives and not miss those gentle whisperings in our souls. So, I mean, there's, there's, there are dozens and dozens of positive benefits, but those are just a few of the kind of big picture ones. Yeah, that's really a great list. That's an attractive incentive list of benefits, I would think. That, mm-hmm. But you're mentioning that it's not a silver bullet, but it's a key element of a integrated approach to living, right? Along with exercise, nutrition, uh, spiritual, uh, you know, connection with a great community of faith, right? All of these things <laughs> feed each other and are connected, aren't they? Yes. And, you know, one thing I felt to mention that a new exciting learning about the benefits of mindfulness uh, is that it very well may help you live longer. At the end of our chromosomes are little caps, kind of like the caps on your shoelaces. Yeah, I was reading that, yeah. They're called telomeres. Yeah. And they're finding out that mindful mindfulness actually, in the telomere, each time a, a chromosome, I'm not a DNA expert, DNA breaks, breaks up to form new ones, that uh, it compromises that little end cap that kind of keeps it all together. But mindfulness actually slows the rate of the shortening of those telomeres and the, the longer your telomeres, the longer you tend to live. So there's some real promising research in that area. It's fascinating. So, I mean, there is this thing in life called resistance. Are you familiar with Stephen Pressfield, his, um, his concept of the resistance, if you will? Any time we move towards creativity or beauty or goodness, you know, there's this, typically this resistance which will surface and try to stop us, really. Mm-hmm. Makes sense. And, mm-hmm. and, and from a Christian worldview, I mean, we would say that that's the adversary. You know, the thief comes yeah. to steal, kill, and destroy, John 10.10. 10, right. But I've come that you might have life and mm-hmm. that you might have it more abundantly. You know, the psalmist mm-hmm. talks about living a life. He likens it unto a cup which overflows. And mm-hmm. you're not only filled with life, but it's overflowing into your the world around you. But it, it makes sense that the adversary would even come against our physical health at a neurological level, mm-hmm. at a DNA level, you know, shortening our life or shortening our influence yes. or, you know, distracting us like we talked about earlier, the, uh, breaking up our rhythm and our cadence to our day, slowing down a project, maybe slowing mm-hmm. down some horizon we're pursuing. And some people give up on it. They get so frustrated. They give yeah. up on that horizon. Yeah. I mean, there's so many implications here, it seems. Oh, yeah, yeah. And one of the descriptors of Satan is he's the father of lies. And so much of our battles are in our minds. And I was preaching a couple of weeks ago and explained to people that, you know, the, the voice of Satan is does not sound like how it's made out in being movies. <laughs> now, it can, certainly. But the voice of Satan, he drops these ideas in our minds. It sounds like us. Sure does. Yeah. That's, the, that's the, ins- the insidiousness of it, really. Yes, yes. And if he can get our thinking messed up, get us anxious and worried and uh, making false assumptions about relationships, false assumptions about God, who he is. Well, he, he's won the battle. He, he stifles us. He shuts us down. Yeah. Yeah, really. And we live these lives then that aren't fully showing forth the excellencies of God or our, our, our witness mm-hmm. grade, if you will, or <laughs> the effectiveness of our witness goes down. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, who wants to look at somebody who's just 
suffering in their relationships and constantly not living a joy-filled life. I mean, it's not very sure. attractional to um, right. to the gospel. Um, this is sort of a sidebar, Dr. Stone, but what is the difference between the physical organ of our brain and our mind? Mm-hmm. That's the million-dollar question. And um, the, the uh, biblical anthropology is kind of like the, the big-picture term for that. I'm not an expert on that. You know, what defines us, our consciousness, the problem of consciousness? Well, a material reductionist, that is someone who says we're simply a sum total of our neural firings and hormonal secretions, and when those stop, we're dead, there's nothing left, okay. would say that— St- Stardust the, and chemicals, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. right would say that the mind is simply a function of what the brain does. The mind is what the brain does. Well, certainly that's true. But because my worldview says that we, ha- we, will be, we have an eternity to look at, that we will have new bodies when we move into the next life. But I believe in the next life, we will have memory, not memory of, of evil or sadness. We will have memory. We will have recognition. We will experience joy. So... This thing called the mind, certainly it's, it's involved in neural firings and all those uh, neuroscience mm-hmm. kinds of processes, but there's something more beyond that. And it's, the, it's, the, it's the, the question of the problem of consciousness, as scientists say. Uh, and there's another term they call it the explanatory gap. An honest scientist will say, only so much can I explain what's going on in my, my mind and my brain, and then there's this gap that I can't explain. Of course, we call it spiritual, mm-hmm. because God's real. Sure. They, they just, honest scientists will leave room for something they can't explain with the scientific method. So the mind is certainly what the brain does partially, but the mind is very much of who we are with, with eternal implications, that those thoughts and those memories they will travel with us when we're in heaven with the Lord, when we are enjoying God forever and in this perfect state, but ever increasing perfection, as I say sometimes. So like when Paul says, you know, don't be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Or when he says, you know, in Ephesians, let the spirit of your mind be renewed. Mm-hmm. He's not just talking about the organ, the three pound organ of the physical brain, is he? No, no, something I don't, I don't, much. I don't, yeah, something more than that, isn't it? Mm-hmm. But you're saying in your book that the mind actually rescripts our physical brain. Yes, it does. It's called neuroplasticity. Yeah. The scientists used to think our brains are more like porcelain rather than putty. Yep. Once fixed, they're fixed. But no, they're very much malleable, even into old age. And there's another term called neurogenesis. I used to think that once you reach a certain age, in the mid-20s, it's downhill from there. You can't generate new neurons, but they're actually brain cells. But they're finding out you can, especially in your memory centers and the front part of your brain, your prefrontal cortex. So it's good news. Even though we lose cognitive capacity over years, we can still generate God through this, the way he designed us, uh, new brain cells. Yeah, really. I mean, that's one of the great recent discoveries in neuroscience, isn't it? Oh, yes, yes, found. Um, yeah, neurogenesis and neuroplasticity. And so just real quickly, what are some practical things we should be pursuing throughout the course of our adult life to to enhance neuroplasticity and neurogenesis? Obviously, reading is is a robust reading life is something important, right? Sure, yeah. Well, Christian community, 
uh, building deep embodying friendships is a powerful tool for a healthy brain. Yeah. E- eating, eating well. Uh, there's something called the MIND diet, M-I-N-D. It was a diet uh, developed uh, Rush uh, University Hospital for Epileptics, but it's a, it's a good, healthy diet. Lots of green stuff, you know, fish, those kind of things. Yeah. Exercise. Exercise releases something called BDNF. It's an it's a acronym for brain-derived neurotrophic factor, long mm. word. Okay. Basically, that's like the fertilizer of the brain. So exercise is powerful. Stress management and mindfulness is a powerful way to manage stress because stress is very devastating not only to your, you know, your heart and your, your gut, but to the brain. So those are just a few practical things uh, that people could do. And of course, in the book, I outline this kind of acronym, BREATHE, which explains and unpacks how to be mindful. Yeah, the model BREATHE. Can you, can you quickly uh, outline that model? Sure. That acronym. It's, Simply an acronym, and each letter stands for a particular component of holy noticing or mindfulness. I'll go through them real quickly okay. here. It's kind of like check-ins. B stands for body. Check into your body. R stands for relationships. Check into your relationships. E stands for your environment, your physical environment, checking into that and you know being made aware and appreciative of God's creation. Okay. A stands for affect, another word for emotion. Check into your emotions. T stands for your thinking, your thoughts, checking into your thoughts. And H stands for your heart. What's the condition of your heart? I don't mean your physical heart, but your heart, your spirit before the Lord. So then the last E really means engage. Go out and live the way Christ wants you to. In each one of these uh, letters, there are a couple of exercises that help you apply it. And you feel that those exercises, as we build those into our <clears throat> into our life regimen, if you will, will really rescript us to... to by default, become more more mindful. Yes, that's what neuroscience is telling us. I mean, there's evidence-based research showing us that mindfulness profoundly and does actually reconfigure the circuits in your brain in a very positive way. Mm. I I just appreciate you. I appreciate the research, the life experience you've gone through. To to you know, this is obviously a part of your life messaging and. Um, the education, the research, you said you've read, uh, what, 200 books just to prepare for this book? B- books and papers, yeah, throughout and... the past three three years just to prepare yeah. for this book. And I was telling somebody recently that people like you are really, I feel, gifts to God's people, the church, to give them knowledge, carve out certain spaces. Uh, you know, the, I, I feel that the Holy Spirit is wanting to get blocks of information and pieces of understanding, you know, to his people. Mm -hmm. And um, really, really appreciate this. So the first century Christians were more in touch with this than Western modern Christians, right? Yes. um, Guess that was a softball, right? (laughs) Yeah, that was a softball. I love that. I love these. Um, After the the New Testament era, coming in the first, second, third centuries, persecution ramped up. Believers from you know Syria, Egypt, Palestine, they went into the deserts to get away from the persecution, and they developed these contemplative practices. When uh, Christianity was made legal to the Edict of Milan in the late 300s, um, uh, more left because they thought the church was being compromised. So about 30,000 during this couple of centuries moved in the deserts and developed these wonderful practices. They wrote them down what they were doing, and there's certainly there were some excesses, but we now are having more and more of those translated 
into the English language so we can learn those practices. So mindfulness is deeply rooted in Christian history as well. Yeah, do you, I mean, I just dawned on me now. I don't know. I'm just thinking out loud. Help me out. But do you feel that somehow in God's sovereignty that he, what, what do you call that in church history? The patristic age, like first, second, third centuries? Yeah, we, we call them the desert mothers and fathers. Okay. Uh, Desert contemplatives, or even desert mystics—that's kind of a word you know evangelicals don't like to use. But those are some terms they were described for these uh, early Christians that gave us so much. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm just wondering out loud. Do you do you feel that maybe is it possible that God was giving these truths and these practices early on in the history of the church, knowing that they would be needed throughout the church age, perhaps I, especially in our time? I don't know. Yeah, you know, the sovereignty of God, he he knew what he was up to. And I just praise, thank God that these writings and these practices lived on in uh, in print and that we can now enjoy them. Yeah. And, you know, wed it with modern science that's that's coming forward, like the recent decades of neuro neuroscience. I think Leonard Sweet has a term. He's great at creating these terms, but ancient futurists. You know, yeah, uh, yeah. You know, I love that term. Have mm-hmm. you heard that term? Okay. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, like reaching back to these rich wells of history and tradition, and yet, you know, uh, being uh, current and relative and uh, in touch with our smartwatches and everything today, right? I mean, uh, mm-hmm. p- pulling it all together—that's tremendous. Mm-hmm. So, what is the best way to get in touch with you or to follow you? I know you have a blog. Is it uh, charlesstone.org? Uh, dot com. Dot com. Charlesstone. probably get you there, but charlesstone.com. Mm-hmm. Okay. Two dot S's in there. Is there a site for this book, a companion site? Yes. And if your listeners want to get a free ebook, it's called Should Christians Practice Mindfulness? Of course, the answer is yes. It kind of gives a quick summary of the book. It's at holynoticing.com. Holynoticing.com. A little pop-up will come, and they can subscribe to my blog, and they get a late where they can get the free ebook, holynoticing.com. Yeah, great, great. I'll be grabbing that today. That's wonderful. Cool. Hey, thank you for what you do. I appreciate you, appreciate this content, the life messaging that you have. Thanks, it's needed. It is needed. It's so mm. needed. I feel it personally. I see it in my family. You know, we have a daughter who just graduated from college. She's starting her first position in another city. And I mean, college students are going through incredible stress, right? And oh. job searches. I mean, oh, the, the tw- horrible, horrible. Yeah. I mean, what what about the twenties, right? <laughs> oh my! Well, you going into high school? The levels of anxiety and depression is skyrocketing among adolescents and uh, you know the, the millennials. It's just skyrocketing. This is a critical life skill, isn't it, for an emerging adult? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Hey, thank you so much. I appreciate you. Okay. Thanks, Brian. Enjoyed being with you. Dr. Charles Stone says that although Jesus is with us all day, our ruminations about the past and our anxiety about the future often obscure our conscious awareness of him. And there is a cost to that. And we're leaving a lot of abundant life on the table because of that. But understanding is coming. David said in Psalms 139, I will give thanks to you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. Do you know that our brain weighs just about three pounds, maybe 2% or less of our total body weight, and yet it uses 20% of our body's oxygen usage? There are 86 billion neurons in your brain. There are 125 
trillion synapses, those connections between those neurons. Your brain operates on just about 25 watts of power. Think of a 25-watt light bulb. You have 70,000 thoughts per day. Your prefrontal cortex stops growing around 22 years of age, yet neuroscientists have now discovered that because of neuroplasticity, our brain continues to develop neurological connections and neurological pathways over a lifetime as we learn new things, as we experience new things, as we relate socially with new connections socially. You can grow new, new neurological connections and form new pathways until the day you die. I don't know. I'm just motivated about this. Uh, Paul said in Romans 12, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You can prove what God's will is, what his best is by the renewing of your mind. Paul said in Ephesians chapter 4, you know, Paul talked a lot about the mind. He said, let the spirit of your mind be renewed. Do you know that your mind has a spirit, a spirituality to it, I should say? He said, we have the mind of Christ available to us. We can grow and progress in the mind of Christ, especially in connection with other developing Christ followers. That's the mind. The mind is separate from the brain. It's difficult to get our understanding around it. Human consciousness and the concept of the mind is eternal and goes with us after our brain or after our body dies and the brain, the physical organ of our brain shuts down. With the renewed mind, we can actually shape and change the physical structure of our brain with new growth, neurogenesis, new connections. For the Christ follower, I think the potential is just sky blue. I don't think there's any ceiling on this. And we should be aware and conscious of things like nutrition, you know, rest. Our brain needs rest at night, especially to recategorize and refile. Our brain is very active during the night, recuperating and sort of rebooting. Healthy brain activity. We need healthy brain activity like robust reading, learning, quality conversation with others, a connection with a community of faith, a sound healthy connection with a community of faith, not toxic, a healthy connection, not religious, authentic and organic connection with a community of faith. We need exercise, you know, we need aerobic exercise, strength training, spiritual disciplines like prayer, like we talked about today, meditation, holy noticing. I encourage you to go to Dr. Charles Stone's website at charlesstone.com with two S's, charlesstone.com. He's active on his blog there, resources that are available. If you go to the companion site for this book, holynoticingbook.com, holynoticingbook.com, you can get a free downloadable ebook about Christian mindfulness. Thanks, Dr. Stone. We appreciate you, and we look forward to... um, staying connected with you and the content that you're producing. Wow. Wow.